Morning, Cedar Creek. Morning. I want to welcome in all of our campuses, as well as those of you who are maybe joining us online. We are glad you're here, wherever here happens to be for you today. And as you can see, we are in the sixth and final week of our summer book series called Amos. And for the last month and a half, we have been walking through this somewhat little known but very interesting book from the Old Testament. And today, we're going to wrap up this series by looking at the last half of the last chapter of Amos. It's Amos chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, you can turn and click there. If not, many of these verses are printed on the program you got when you came in. But before we jump in to Amos, I want to take just a moment and say thank you to our campus pastors and to Ben for the incredible job they did teaching through this book of Amos. Let's show them some love. Yeah. We are so blessed because if you've been here this summer in this series, you know Amos ain't no easy book, right? It's not an easy book to read and it's certainly not an easy book to teach through. But I just thought they did a great job peeling back some of the layers of this prophecy and this history of the nation of Israel and connecting the dots between the unchanging truth of God's word and the reality of our daily lives. So I'm so thankful. You know, we are truly blessed as a church. We are blessed by our amazing team, our staff, our pastors, all of the folks who lead so well for the kingdom of God. And I'm just honored. I'm so grateful because it gave me some time out of the pulpit, some time to hang out with family, reconnect, restore, rejuvenate. But it also gave me some weeks here in the office when I didn't have to prepare a sermon to really be thinking and praying and looking forward to the fall. Because I just have to tell you, it's been a really difficult year. It's been a difficult year for our family and because you love us so much. It's been a difficult year for the life of our church. But I'm just telling you, the fog is lifting, the black clouds are removing, and the light of God's power and strength and his call on this church is breaking. And I've never been more excited for the fall than I am right now. So many amazing things coming up. It kicks off in just a couple of weeks with CAST, 2019 CAST. This is an annual gathering of all of our campuses, and typically we cast some vision of what's coming and what's next, but here's what I know. We don't need a new vision at Cedar Creek Church. We have an amazing vision. We needed a refreshing of the Holy Spirit to be poured out on this vision. That's what we're going to do. We're going to gather as one church family for a night of worship and a very specific time of prayer to pray for our church with the last half of this year. And so I want you to mark your calendars August 14th. Be here. Make that a priority. And then just a week or two after cast, we are kicking off our church-wide fall series and study called, catch this, Living Your Blessed Life Now. 
It's going to be so cool. We're going to walk through the Beatitudes, and I know we've done that before, but we're going to look at the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from maybe a little different angle, maybe a way you haven't thought of them before, of how God moves us from broken to blessed. That in the brokenness of our lives, that he can bless and does some of his most amazing blessings in and through that. So that's going to be a great series we're going to be going through. And then in September, September 11th is a Wednesday night. We are gathering, we are hosting a gathering of churches throughout our community to gather here at our Banks Mill campus to spend time doing one thing and one thing only. And that is celebrating Jesus. In fact, we are calling it a night for Jesus. Where we're just going to gather and worship and celebrate and dance and sing. And just have an amazing night to say, thank you, Jesus. And you know, we at Cedar Creek, we are one church in many locations. But as believers, we are part of one huge church in many, many locations. And we come in many, many different flavors and traditions and styles and imagine all of us from all these different churches getting together worship teams from multiple churches all with one voice just simply saying thank you Jesus making much of Jesus in our community that's Wednesday night September 11th you see why I'm excited it's going to be a great fall and I want you to be a part of it not just physically present but with heart and passion and a desire to do, see God do great things among his people in his community. So, with all that said, now let's jump into Amos. For those of you who are maybe new this morning or like me, you've been out for a couple of weeks. Let me give you a quick overview. Amos is an unlikely prophet who is called by God to deliver some bad news to the nation of Israel. And that bad news is that God's righteous justice is coming. They're about to have to pay the piper for their unjust lifestyle. See, you need to understand, God chose the nation of Israel not because they were special, but because he is special. And he wanted to demonstrate his character, his specialness to the whole world through the nation of Israel. God rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt so the world would know that he is a rescuer, that he redeems us from slavery. And then God established these principles, these guidelines for living. We call them the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. And he established those so that the nations around the nation of Israel would see that God is a just God. That's why even today, most of our ideas of justice come from the Ten Commandments, come from God's form of justice. He wanted this nation to reflect to all the other nations that he is a just God. And then as Ben shared last week, he set up this tithing system within the nation of Israel that they were to bring the first fruit, the first 10% of the best of whatever they had. The best of their flocks, the best of their crops, the best of their orchards, the best of their business earners. They were to bring that, not because God needed their stuff. They brought that and gave it to God to show that God is a God who provides. 
that God will meet your needs when you trust in him. And then he set up this sacrificial system of bringing a spotless lamb to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins as a precursor, a forward-looking vision to the ultimate lamb of God who would be sacrificed on the cross for all our sins. See, they were to reflect God to the nations of, around them, and they stunk at it. They did a horrible job of it. And God was not okay with that. And so Amos shows up, and for eight and a half chapters, he hammers away at their injustice and the consequences of it. Because just like for us, bad choices have bad consequences. And for eight and a half chapters, Amos is talking about gloom and doom and destruction. God's going to rain down wrath. It's going to be bad. He's going to destroy the city. Most of you are going to die, and those of you that survive the invasion are going to be drug away to live as slaves in a foreign land. It's a bad news book for eight and a half chapters but then we get to the last half of chapter 9 and in amidst all of that there's a beautiful picture of hope and it's that hope that I want us to focus on because God makes three amazing promises not just to the nation of Israel but promises that all of us as believers can hold on and as you unpack these promises, what we will discover is three reasons why you can have hope. If you're in need of hope this morning, you're at the right place. You might want to take some notes because there are three reasons you can have hope. Number one, because with God, it's never too late. With God, it's never too late. Listen, if there is ever a group of people in all of human history who had used up their second chances, it's got to be the nation of Israel. Because see, this wasn't just something that happened during Amos' time. This is something, a cycle that the nation of Israel had been in almost from the moment that God rescued them from Egypt. God would bless them and prosper them and, and they would have peace and things would be good. And as soon as things got to be good, they would forget God and begin to live the way they wanted to live. And as you know, it just falls apart and then it would go really bad and they would cry out desperately to God. And God would restore them. Then they'd forget God and crash and burn and cry out. And then God, over and over and over for centuries... And now, by the time we get to Amos, it would seem as if they've finally gone too far. They've finally used up all their chances. In fact, if you look again through those first eight and a half chapters of Amos, most of that judgment seems final. It seems like this is it. God is done. It's over. But then, we turn a corner, and Amos shares for God some amazing promises of hope. The first one's found in verse 11. Look at what it says. In that day, in other words, in a day that's coming, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. Now, what's he talking about? What is this old thing about the house of David? Well, 300 years before Amos, David, the king of Israel, was at the pinnacle of his reign. He had reunited the 12 tribes all together. They were one nation under God. 
He had defeated all their enemies. They had rebuilt. Jerusalem was a thriving city. They had peace. They had prosperity. He had brought the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol that represented God's presence with the people. He had brought it back into Jerusalem, and life was good. One day, David is looking out of the window of his palace, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant, and all it's covered with is a ratty tent. And David's like, that ain't right. I'm living in a mansion, and God is living in a torn-up tent. And he calls in Nathan, his spiritual advisor, and says, Nate, we got to do something. we got to build God a house. And Nate said, that sounds like a great idea, but let's pray on it. Nathan prays the next morning. He comes back and says, David, you are not the one to build God a house. Your son will take care of this. You want to build me a house, David. God's promise is he's going to build you a house. And it ain't going to be no house of brick and mortar like you're living in now. It's going to be a dynasty of reign. Your descendants will reign on the throne forever. What an amazing promise. But now 300 years later, that promise seems too late. Everything's in a shambles. And yet God says, I'm going to restore it. And guess what? That promise is true right now. And you say, wait a minute, Philip. There's no descendant of David sitting on a throne anywhere in the world. And you're right. Not in this world. But there is a descendant of David who is sitting on an eternal throne right now. His name is what? Right, that's why the gospel writers wanted to be very clear. They put the genealogy of Jesus to say he is a direct descendant of David. That's why the angel at Christmas announced his birth and said he will sit on the throne of David. Promise made, promise kept. Now here's what I want you to, don't miss this. This is my point, and I do have a point. That the power of God's promises are found in his faithfulness, not our performance. Let me say that again. The power of God's promises are based on his faithfulness, not my performance. See, I know some of you right now are looking at your life and you're looking at your past and you're looking at your failures and and your mistakes and and all the times you rededicated your life and said, you know, I'm going to live for Jesus and you do good for a while and then it all falls apart and you're like, it's too late. I, I may squeak into heaven, but God can never use me for his purposes. If you're feeling that today, let me tell you, that's a lie from the pit of hell. There is nothing in the Bible about any believer at any time, based on any sin in their life, having to forever live a second-class life on this earth. It ain't in there. In fact, what's in there is the exact opposite. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, if anyone belongs to Christ, there is a what? What does it say? There's a new creation. What does that mean? Look at the rest of the verse. The old things have gone and everything is made new. Everything. This is not just a one-time promise when you receive Jesus Christ and get baptized. This is a daily promise that God can make anything and everything in your life new. Man, if the book of Amos teaches it anything, it's that with God, there's always hope. But here's the key, and don't miss this. The key to accessing that hope is to stop 
trying to do it yourself. Look back at verse 11. Look at what God says. He says, I will restore. I will repair. I will rebuild. See, the hope of restoration is not in my commitment to do better. It's in my willingness to surrender to the one who can rebuild it. So let me ask you straight up right now in your life, where are you thinking it's too late? Where are you thinking you've worn out your chances? Maybe it's your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your finances, Maybe it's that addiction that you keep, you beat it for a while and then you fall back in and you've had this cycle of relapse or you've rededicated your life in this cycle of relapse. Wherever that is, my plea to you, grab hold of the promise. Stop trying to do it in your own strength and simply surrender to the one who is worthy of our trust. There's hope. It's never too late. There's a second reason to have hope, and that is that God uses broken things. Wow, that's good news, isn't it? God uses broken things. See, it's not just that God restores what we break and what we mess up. It's that God takes that brokenness and uses it for our good and His glory. Right, remember The whole purpose of Israel is to reveal what God is like to the nations and that through this nation, God will bless all nations. That's their whole purpose, and they blew it, right? Nobody was looking at them and going, wow, I I, I want some of what they got. Their life is so different from ours. No, in fact, that's what the whole point of Amos chapter 2 is. When Amos shows up in Israel and starts raining down a little justice prophecy, he don't start with the nation of Israel. He starts with the nation surrounding them. And he pronounces judgment on them because of their injustice, because of the things they've done, taking you know, advantage of the poor, slavery. He goes all around the horn, and then he gets to Israel, and guess what? It's the same issues. The same things that were going on in all these other nations is going on in Israel. They have born. It is broken. So what does God do? Go to plan B? Give up on Israel and pick another nation? No. He uses even their brokenness. Check this out. Verse 12. This is God to the nation of Israel. He says, so that they, God says that they, the nation of Israel, may possess the remnant of Edom, And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do this. Now stay with me, because this is going to get a little wonky. We've got to peel back some layers. The key to understanding what God is saying there is understanding this phrase, the remnant of Edom. In Amos' day, that phrase described all the other nations other than Israel. These were all the other nations of the world. It goes all the way back to uh, Jacob and Esau, back in Genesis. You remember Isaac marries uh, Rachel. She gets pregnant with twins, and those twins are fighting in her womb. And God says, look, you don't just have two sons fighting. You've got two nations that are at war, and they will stay at war. And sure enough, that's what happened. Jacob got the blessing, and he became the father of Israel. His 12 sons became the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Esau became the father of every other nation, and from that point forward, they were called Edomites. 
And so when Amos says you will possess the remnant of Edom, he's saying you're going to possess all the other nations. But that word possess is not a military term. It doesn't mean invade and conquer and overthrow. It's actually a marriage term. It's this idea when two people become married, two families get enfolded into one. And so when God says you will possess the remnant of Edom, he's saying you're still going to be the method through which I bless and invite into my family all the other nations of the world. How do I know that? All you have to do is fast forward to the New Testament, the book of Acts. The New Testament, the brand new church in Jerusalem, it is a Jewish-only church. All the leaders, all of the people are Jews. But then all of a sudden, non-Jews, people from other nations, start coming to faith, and they start showing up at church, and they are creating a stink. Because they don't know the rules. They're showing up with bacon on their breath. They don't know, they don't, you know, they don't have a hat on their head. They don't know the rules. They don't know the culture. And so it's creating this chaos. Who belongs? Can these non-Jews come in to the family of God and they have this Jerusalem council? They call the leadership to answer this question. And Peter, good old Peter, he stands up to defend that these non-Jews can come into the family of God. And you know what he uses to defend that position? He quotes this promise. From the book of Amos. Right? It's the only time the book of Amos is quoted in the entire New Testament. Acts 15, 16, and 17. Here's the quote. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore. That's verse 11. That's the first promise. And then here's what verse 12. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my Name. You say, wait a minute, Peter, that's not a quote. Amos said the remnant of Edom you would possess. No, he's not taking liberty with the scripture. He's not paraphrasing it. He is stating clearly what this promise to Amos and the nation of Israel meant, that through them all of mankind could come into the family of God. Isn't that cool? But look, don't miss, don't miss the point. God Use the brokenness of Israel to still carry out his plan and his purpose. And he can do that with the brokenness in your life. See, God not only wants to heal and restore the shattered pieces of your life, he wants to use them for his plan and his purpose. I mean, how many times have you heard me say, your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest pain? And brokenness. And for 25 plus years, we've seen that here at Cedar Creek. And for the last 10 months, our family has lived in that reality. That's an unchanging promise from God. And that's a reason to have hope, even in your pain. I mean, what are you going to do with that pain? We all got it. Are you going to let it sideline you? Are you going to let that pain steal your hope? Or are you going to surrender it and let God use it. You can have hope. It's never too late. God uses broken things. And then finally, number three, maybe the greatest source of hope ever is that God's promises are eternal. God's promises are eternal. The hope requires believing that my future will be better than my past. 
That's the essence of hope, right? That things will get better. That's what hope is all about. And God not only promises that things will get better, God promises that things will get better than you could ever imagine they could. You know, all great artists know the power of contrast. If you want something to stick out, if you want it to jump off the painting or the photograph, it needs to be contrasted from the rest of the picture. You see this now? This is real popular now in photographs and in art where everything is in black and white except one object, usually a little red rose. Have you seen those? You know, there's one little bright red rose on a backdrop of everything black and white. And man, that thing pops. It jumps off the page. It gets your attention. And I want you to understand what I think is one of the greatest contrasts in the entire Bible are these last words from the book of Amos. Amos verses 13 and 14. Now look, they're not printed on your outline. They're not going to be up on the screen. Why? Because I don't want you to read it. I want you to hear this promise and visualize it. Imagine now you're on the backdrop of eight and a half chapters of God's judgment. You're going to be overthrown. Your cities are going to be destroyed. It's going to be bad. You're going to be killed. You're going to be hauled off as slaves. And on that black and white portrait of gloom and doom, here's the beautiful red rose. You ready? The time will come, the Lord says, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. When the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands. and They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens and they will eat their crops and drink their wine. You see that? God's promise is not just to restore Israel to the way they used to be. It's a promise to restore them to better than it's ever been. And understand, this promise was not just fulfilled when the exiles came home and rebuilt the city because it never got that good. They never got back to where they were at the pinnacle of David's reign. Nothing in Jerusalem and Israel, even today, has never been like God described it. Why? Because he's talking about an eternal future. He's talking about a place that's not on this earth that nothing can take from us. In fact, look at verse 15. God says, I will firmly plant them there in their own land. And they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Do you see how eternal that promise is? Understand, this is not just some prophecy, some promise of a piece of dirt over in the middle of the east for a nation called Israel. This is a promise of an eternal home for every one of us through a relationship with Jesus. So let me just ask you, do you have that hope? Do you have that hope of an eternal future secured and better than you could ever imagine? If not, I want to give you an opportunity right now this morning to receive that promise through a relationship with Jesus.
Would you pray with me? If you're here this morning and, and you've never received the gift that God is offering through a relationship with Jesus, or, or maybe like the Jews in the time of Amos, you've been going through the religious rituals, you've been doing all the right things on the surface, but it's hollow in your heart because you don't have that promise. Or maybe you've never heard or never known or just thought you were too bad or too messed up or too far away and you never cried out to God and begged for him to rescue you. You could do that right now this morning. Just in your heart right there where you are. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need this promise because I am broken and messed up. I've done it my own way and I've hit rock bottom and I need you. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. I receive Christ's death on the cross for the personal forgiveness of all of my sins. Come into my life, Jesus. Oh, if that's you this morning, the Bible says you have become a brand new creation. Everything can be made new. It won't happen overnight. You're going to struggle. You're going to battle sin all your life. But you now have God's spirit in you. And as you listen to that spirit more and more and the lies of the world and the enemy less and less, he will begin to transform you. You will find purpose and meaning. You will be part of the plan that he's laid out for your life. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer. You have that promise, but you live in fear like you don't believe it's true. If that's you this morning, will you ask God just to fill you, pour out his spirit, and teach this truth and drive it deeper into your life so that the promises of God become more powerful than the circumstances of your life. Oh, Jesus, move among your people this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen.